Yeah, yeah, there you go. All right, everyone. Good evening. Welcome back to our Wednesday worship time. Hopefully, you received a little half sheet of paper as you came in on the back. We also have... We also have some other pages back there. There's a landscape-oriented calendar that takes you through the, through the fall, what's happening Sunday nights, Wednesday nights. That's a good calendar just to go back to whatever you use for your personal calendar at home or your phone. Write in anything that would be helpful for you, so feel free to, to glance at that. We looked over it several times, and by we, I mean me and Jeff, so there's probably things that are wrong, but we... We did our best to get that thing printed before tonight, so if you see something that doesn't seem right, let us know. Also, on your way out, Carl has put more of the revival invitation cards and the revival prayer calendars. We'll talk about that in a minute, but feel free to, uh, to grab one of those back there as well. Thanks for being patient with us as we get back into our Wednesday schedule We'll have music next Wednesday night. We don't have music tonight. We'll have music next Wednesday night. Two Wednesday nights from now, we'll have food. So at 5.15, the meal restarts. Yeah, we're all our favorite thing. It is a really good time. If you don't normally participate in the 5.15 meal, it's a great chance to get to know people. Uh, it's a good price for really high-quality food that you get. And so definitely come and be a part of that. That's one of our uh, – and if you can't get here at 5.15, the, the food's – usually available until 6.10 at least, um, 6.15, something like that. So don't feel like you have to rush to be here at 5.15. That's just when we start, start eating at the beginning. So music next Wednesday night, food two Wednesday nights from now. Uh, but I'm going to get, I'm going to change uh, stands. That current stand continues to drop every time I, every time I touch it. So, before we have a time of prayer together, I would point you to the back of that half sheet of paper just for a second. We put a quick list at the bottom of upcoming events, things we want you to be aware of. This Sunday, Youth Parent Sunday, if you have a student who is 7th through 12th grade, you'll be in this room for uh, breakfast and hearing more about what's happening with the student ministry this fall, so I want you to know about that. Uh, have our parent-child dedication. I think we have 11 babies and toddlers for parent-child dedication, so that's fun. So guaranteed, somebody will cry, somebody will throw up, somebody will run off the stage, you know, and we laugh. Unless it's your own child, and then you're mortified when it happens. So if it's somebody else's kid, it's really funny. If it's your own kid, you know, it's mortifying when it happens. So, so be, be kind to those, those parents. Uh, bring your best homemade ice cream Sunday night at 5 o'clock. We're going to have homemade ice cream and do our missions uh, celebration service from the summer. Two quick updates not related or not on this schedule. You can look at the other. I might point out three things. First is... Compass Preschool, Crystal just caught me and said, we have 75 kids enrolled for Compass Preschool this year. We max out at 85, so we have 75 enrolled. We had 54, 53, 54 last year, so we've jumped up to 75 for Compass. They have a lot of kids. Uh, kindergarten made, have 11 little kindergarten kids, uh, so it, it's really, really going well. Those ladies do an amazing job, uh, so I want you to know about that. Speaking of school, not related to here, but more public schools, next Wednesday, I'm scanning the room looking for Jim, but he's, oh, he's getting the, the mission trip meeting. Um, next Wednesday at 11 o'clock, we are hosting for more public schools a school bus driver information meeting. Uh, more public schools is desperate for bus drivers right now, and so they're putting a call out to every place they can find so we're going to host that lunch here at Emmaus. Jim would love it if some of us would get certified to drive the school bus because not only is that a way to make some money as you help the school, but also when our new bus, our people mover comes in, 
you'll be certified to drive that as well. So it's kind of a double advantage to us. We get people certified to drive the people mover when it comes, plus it's a way to reach out and help uh, more public schools. So if you are interested in that, if you know somebody who needs a job and driving a school bus is something they would be able to do, next Wednesday at 11 o'clock is a way to fast track that for, for anybody you know. So you may know people looking for a job. This would be a tremendous opportunity because they are desperate for bus drivers right now. Um, and then the third thing I was going to say before we pray, on here I mentioned Jaron and Christine's 20th anniversary at Emmaus on Sunday uh, September the 8th as part of that morning service. If you would like to give, obviously there's no obligation, but if you would like to give to a love offering, uh, just to bless Jaron and Christine um, on their 20th anniversary here, we'll wait through the end of September before we disperse that out. So if you'd like to give that love offering just to encourage them, bless them, please do that over the next four or five weeks as you think about it in your offering. So we want you to know about that. All right, let's take a time uh, to pray together. Anything going on in our church family that we need to mention up front? Uh, anything, any updates, things that you could let us know about? We may not have anything. All right. By the time we get to November, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll have a whole list of things, probably, of things. Well, let's, uh, let's do this then. Let's flip it over to the other side. Anybody have anything you want to share just about God's work in your life, in your family, a praise, something that you've seen the Lord do? Go, go for it, Coach. Here, here, we're going to give you the mic here. Well, they want to hear you. Hold it close. The, uh, the man who owns the ink spot down and more, the uh, t-shirt shop, his wife was diagnosed with uh, stage four cancer. Now this is a praise, it's not a, don't, you know, and uh, he's kind of hesitant about, he didn't believe in miracles, he didn't believe in, you know, I mean, he's, he, 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 they go to church, but he, he just wasn't too up on, on that. He, uh, no, it's not, you know. So he took her down to MD Anderson and they said, you know, we, we'll treat her, but they, they gave her 10 treatments of chemo, and she rung the bell and walked out. <laughs> wow. Cancer-free. Praise the Lord for that. That's good. He's a believer now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Anybody else, something God's done in, in your life this summer or your family, something you want to, uh, you want to share? Appreciate that. Praise God for that. That's right, your grandson being baptized. That's a good thing to be, yeah. Thankful for that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That was James's sister, if you couldn't hear on this side, yeah. Yeah. No, you're good. I, I think so. I was going to say the same thing. So you're going to get in trouble because you're going to say what I was going to say, and I was unsure about it. So keep going then. So, yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. College age students, young adults. Yeah. He was mentioning uh, Kenny Mossman's son, Matt, who trusted in Christ for salvation Sunday night, this last Sunday night. So Kenny was, we won't see Kenny a lot because of <laughs> OU football starting back up. We'll, we'll catch him in a few months. But uh, I, can, I can tell you he is really, he is really excited about that. Yeah, Matt, yeah, Matt's on the basketball staff now. That's right, yeah. Yes, Scott does need salvation. Uh, Kenny has another son who's not saved, uh, who uh, lives up in Kansas, I think. Yes, Scott. So continue to pray for Scott. Um, but his other, little Andrew, obviously, and then Matt. Matt's probably, what, 24, 25, something like that? Something like that. And so he was the one who was saved on, yeah. I think Scott's a little bit older. I think he's the oldest of the boys. So, yeah, again, thank you for that. Anything else? All right, we're going to try something in here. Have, you guys know Hope is Alive, the, uh, the ministry that we support, the addiction recovery ministry that we support. So Hope is Alive, if you ever just want to be blown away by, by the work that God does, go to one of their Sunday night celebration meetings. They, these guys in the different addiction recovery homes get together, and gals too, and separately with their homes, get together on Sunday nights and, and do this celebration where they talk about how long they've been sober, they talk about the goals that they completed, financial goals, personal goals, things like this that they've completed. Um, and then they do a, a time where they try to honor the scripture that says that we honor one another. They brag on each other uh, about something that they've seen someone do, progress they've seen somebody made. You want to brag on anybody? Uh, that you've just seen the Lord use them. It's obviously not to build them up. It's to, to honor the Lord. But in the Lord, we can encourage one another in these ways. So um, if that person's name is not named Owen, then you can do it. So uh, uh, anybody you just want to thank the Lord for that he's put in your life or you've seen them do something that really, really stood out to you? Go for it, Deanne. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Dylan, we would all say that about Dylan Beth, for sure. We thank the Lord for you, brother. Yes. Yeah, I love that. I love that. At my, uh, I may have told you guys this, uh, that just, you, you see, my mom, she'll bring her fifth graders back every year that same way, where you continue to think about that. Are you going to say something? There you go. Brag on your wife. It's a good thing. Smart guy, yeah, yeah, Jackie's, all right, yeah. Now everybody jump in real quick and brag on your wife too. So uh, <laughs> David set the bar, the bar high on that one. No, that is true. I thank the Lord for your wife for sure. I wish she was in here for us to brag on her, but uh, Jamie, uh, Jamie Fullingham, when I looked down and she's bringing Will back into the service and taking him out and the care that she provides for Will. You guys haven't seen that in action. Uh, it is, it's incredible what, what Jamie does. 
And, and the, I'm sure she gets discouraged at times, but her attitude always <laughs> looks incredible, the way that she's caring for him and bringing him in. Uh, it's funny what I see with, like, people reentering the worship service when they go out to, like, the restroom or something and they come back in. We have a couple of kids that they reenter with style. They're, like, pointed people and <laughs> dancing their way back in from the bathroom. And so, but then I look down and... I see Jamie bringing Will back in, and I'm like, oh, man, that's the perspective. Like, that's what it looks like to live out the Christian life, uh, to care for a little guy like that. So that's pretty awesome. All right, let's spend a little bit of time in prayer together, and then we're going to study Scripture and go from there. Father, it is so good to gather together in the name of Jesus we gather together remembering the hope that we have in Christ. Hope that's not based on anything that we have accomplished. It's a hope that's not based on any circumstances that might change. Um, it's a hope that we celebrate because you have brought salvation, that you have changed our lives. Uh, you've changed our eternities, just as TJ was mentioning with these young people who have trusted in you. And God, I pray that we would see many people come to salvation, many people baptized, um, because of your spirit at work through our church and our families. God, I pray that we would do well at encouraging and honoring one another, not to build one another up in an in a egotistical way, but just to see how you're at work. God, thank you for the way that you have gifted people, the spiritual gifts that we have in our church what it looks like to love one another and be patient with one another, to care for those in need, especially. God, we pray for our families who are in the middle of foster care and adoption situations. God, that you would empower them. You would make your presence and peace known to them. God, we pray looking ahead to the next several weeks at Emmaus with opportunities we have to reach out to people in our community. God, we pray for our revival in September that you would begin even now to, to draw people here who maybe, like Dub said earlier, haven't thought about your power or haven't thought about church or the gospel in a long time, uh, but you would use this to, to remind them of how good you are. God, we thank you again for the preschool ministry and the kids' ministry, youth ministry, college ministry music, so many things going on on campus on Wednesday nights. God, we thank you for the people there, that your spirit would be at work in those situations. And God, continue to lead us ahead. I'm so excited about this fall semester and everything that's in front of us. God, let us be faithful each day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, Matthew chapter 12 as a starting point. We're going to move around to several Several different passages tonight, but Matthew 12 will be a good starting point, and that half sheet of paper will be our notes if you like to follow along and just have a little bit of an idea of, of where we're going. Wednesday nights during the fall, I'm going to either do a Matthew passage, kind of an extension of Sunday morning, or do a passage we don't have time to get to on Sunday morning. I was hoping, and we still will, I was hoping to finish Matthew Easter of 2020, and then I started laying out the sermons and realized we're not going to make it unless we use Wednesday nights. So Wednesday nights are going to be the bridge nights that will get us through all the verses in Matthew so that we end on Easter 2020 with the Great Commission. So that's the plan. But Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 15, it says, Jesus aware of this, so aware that the Pharisees are conspiring against him, like verse 14 said, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. When it says in verse 15 that Jesus was aware of this, we can ask ourselves the question, well, how was he aware of it? Uh, did he hear some reports? Did his disciples come back to him? Somebody come back to him and say, hey, the Pharisees are out to get you? Very likely that's what's going on in that passage. But look over just for a moment in verse 25. After the 
people were amazed, and after the Pharisees speak out and say that he's doing this work by the work of Beelzebul, in, in verse 25 it says, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. So sometimes we know that Jesus knows about these things because reports are coming to him. Other times, and this is unique in Matthew's gospel, you get a lot more of this in John. And so as you think about the way the gospels relate to one another and the different perspectives we get, in John's gospel, you get more indications of what we might call Jesus' supernatural understanding or his understanding of what's going on in a person's heart. Matthew here, though, in verse 25, seems to be playing John's card where he says, knowing their thoughts. So Jesus, as the Son of God among us, was able to know certain things, it seems like, in a, in a divine way. So verse 15 and verse 25, I wanted you to see how, how those two pieces came together. And then remember on verse 16 where it says, he ordered them not to make him known. It's just that idea again I'm thinking on my feet here for a minute, but this is another John, Gospel of John relationship. Uh, what you have here is he's not saying anything because the time has not yet come. In the Gospel of Mark, this is called the Messianic secret. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is constantly telling people, hey, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, because they don't understand fully who he is and what it's going to look like for the Messiah to come. And so if all these reports start going out, we find places in the gospel it actually causes Jesus more trouble because all the people show up at the house, he can't do the work that he's called to do, and so he tells his people he's not out to hype himself, and that's going to become important here in a few verses. He's not out to hype himself. So you get to verse 17, and it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The word fulfill is the theme word for the Gospel of Matthew. This is what the Gospel of Matthew looks like, what it's all about. And we know that Matthew loves Isaiah. I've put on the back of your notes, we're not going to go through them at all, or not all of them, I mean, but on the back, Matthew's use of, of Isaiah, multiple, multiple times, Matthew is using Isaiah. And I'm going to tell you in a minute why I think that's the case and why it's a big deal, but you see that going on right there. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 1. Now's when we start turning our Bible. Those of you in elementary Sunday school who won the Bible drill contest, this will be your time to show off. We're going to turn around to a lot of, a lot of places. Did anybody do Bible drill back in the day? Attention? Oh, man. It's good times. Um, okay. Matthew chapter 1. Not bragging or anything, but I went to the state Bible drill competition. <laughs> First Baptist, Oklahoma City. Nothing says prideful elementary kid like the state. By. I've always looked back on that and thought that was terrible for our spiritual development. It was great for our biblical literacy, but it just fed all the wrong things for, for our hearts. So uh, First Baptist, Oklahoma City. Um, Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Verse 23, guess where that comes from? Isaiah. <laughs> so Matthew's very first use of a quotation will come from Isaiah, and you're going to see that re repetitively. Look in Matthew chapter 5 for just a minute, this idea of fulfillment. I want to remind you of the core passage in Matthew. Many scholars think Matthew chapter 5, 17 to 20 is the hinge for the, for the gospel of Matthew. It, it all turns kind of on this, this passage in particular. So Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished." And then jumping down there to 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that, exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The key verse there is verse 17, where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. So he didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. He didn't come to get rid of that. He came to fulfill it. And the constant question in Matthew's gospel is, how is he fulfilling the Old Testament? 
Well, tonight, what I want to do with chapter 12, those verses that we were getting close to reading earlier, what I want to show you is how those verses and a few others in Matthew show that Jesus came as the fulfillment of Isaiah's servant passages. In the book of Isaiah, you get four different sections that are called servant psalms or or servant passages. And what you find in Matthew's gospel is multiple times where Jesus is fulfilling this idea from the book of Isaiah of the servant who would come. Here's what you need to know about Isaiah. Uh, I say this half-kiddingly, but sometime in the next decade, we will give the book of Isaiah a lot of attention because it's so, so amazing, so rich. Um, But in the book of Isaiah, it's really summed up by, you're going to face judgment, but hope is available. (laughs) You're going to face judgment, but there's salvation out there. You see multiple times in the book of Isaiah, judgment, and then on a dime, it turns to hope and salvation. Uh, So look in Isaiah for just a minute. We're going to show you some of these these situations. Go to Isaiah chapter 1 to start out with. Certainly, we would say you see the picture of the gospel all over the Old Testament, but Isaiah is often referred to as the Old Testament gospel. (laughs) It, as much as any of the books in the Old Testament, portrays the gospel that you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Isaiah sometimes is referred to as the Old Testament gospel. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 1 Verses 2 through 17 are pretty tough. These are things where judgment is coming. The people of Israel, Judah, are not living in the right way. So then in verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So (laughs) sin, but white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah will pull very close together judgment and salvation. Go to chapter 9. There's so many of these we can look at, so I'm just trying to pick a... pick a few of these. Chapter 8 is pretty hard. It's it's kind of a judgment type passage. Chapter 8 verse 22, they will look to the earth but behold the stress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Not exactly the happiest end to a chapter. Chapter 9 verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. If you think, "Eh, that sounds borderline familiar, it's because Matthew uses that passage in in his gospel. It's another example of judgment followed by salvation. Uh, Chapter 11, go over to chapter 11. Or really chapter 10, let's start in chapter 10. Verse 20. If you've done some reading in the Old Testament, you're probably familiar with this idea of a remnant, that when everything just looks terrible and nothing's going to work out, God will remind him, the people, I have a remnant. I have those that continue to trust in me. So there's judgment, but there's hope of salvation. So chapter 10, verse 20, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And then it starts this passage that leads into another messianic passage. So again, you see this over and over and over again in Isaiah. Now fast forward to chapter 42. So Isaiah 42, I've, I've put on your paper there, I think, yeah, 
kind of the third main, Isaiah's servant psalms, that third main point there. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 52 and 53. Those are the four servant psalms, and they portray the servant of the Lord in, in different ways. But let's look at Isaiah 42 in particular here. Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. This is verse 1 of that chapter. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. That's the first of Isaiah's servant psalms, this portrayal of the servant. Now, the question we ask in Bible study at this point is, who's the servant? Look back in chapter 41. So turn a page back, scroll up in your phone. Chapter 41, verse 8. Who is this servant that will come and do these things that Isaiah is talking about? Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, God whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the servant of God and the son of God, which is really fascinating when you start doing some New Testament theology and you see that Israel at times was referred to as the son of God. But here we have Israel referred to as the servant of God. As the Old Testament goes along, as this process goes along of God showing his salvation, you see a transition happening from God's servant being Israel as a, what we might call a corporate group, as a group, to then it starts to feed into this idea of a messianic individual, this idea of a coming Messiah, that there will be an, not just a group of people, but there will be one particular individual that will begin to take on some of these characteristics. That obviously <laughs> prepares the way for the coming of Jesus, that the servant of the Lord will come to do what Israel as a people were not able to fully do. Because one of Matthew's strategies is to show us multiple times where Jesus does what Israel was not able to do. Because Jesus passes through the waters of baptism, Israel passed through the water. Israel passed through the water, where'd they go? Into the wilderness. Jesus passes through the water of baptism, where does he go? Into the wilderness. What happens? He's tempted. Israel failed their temptation in the wilderness. Jesus overcomes Satan in the wilderness. How does he do it? He uses Deuteronomy. <laughs> he uses the words of Israel to overcome the enemy. And so you see God's servant is Israel, hope of Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. This is the progression you see. This is why Matthew latches on to these servant psalms. Because Matthew is showing how Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, comes as the fulfillment of these promises. Israel, Messianic figure, Jesus the Messiah. Then, in some sense, and we have to be careful here, but we're going to talk about this. In some sense, we as followers of Jesus continue to live as the servants of God. We continue to carry forward that, uh, that, that service. You might know Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says, I didn't come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So his service is found as he gives us life. The neat thing about that is the fourth servant song in Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 53, is this incredible prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus, his suffering and what that will look like. So that's how all of those things come together. Um, all right, can't do much more of that or we're going we're gonna to run out of time. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 12. So if you, if you have a note sheet in front of you, that fifth main point where we're going to talk about Matthew chapter 12, point B, uh, uh, under number five, I gave a quote out of a commentary there just saying that Matthew 
has latched on to Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, because it serves so remarkably to illustrate the nature of Jesus' ministry in Israel. Matthew is picking up on these Isaiah passages to show the type of ministry that Jesus was going to bring. The question is, okay, what type is that? Matthew chapter 12, verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So what do we find about this servant of God? He will be empowered and anointed by the Spirit of God. What do we know about Jesus' life and ministry? Well, you have the coming of the Spirit at the time of his baptism, but you can even back up to the time of his birth and you see the work of the Holy Spirit. So Matthew has set this story up so you see the work of the Holy Spirit at the birth of Jesus You see the work of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of his ministry, and now you have this prophecy from Isaiah where Matthew is saying, this is the one in whom the Spirit of God is doing this type of work. This is what you're seeing here. Um, That language there in verse 18 about my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, back at that baptism account where the voice is coming from heaven, what in particular, is said at that point, this is my beloved son. How is Israel referred to in the Old Testament? My servant and my son. Right here in Matthew 12, 18, Matthew is pulling in this quote, here's the one who will come as the servant of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, and this is the one who will be the son of God. So Jesus is taking all these things, and they're all wrapped up in his character and his ministry. And so it's amazing how all that comes together there. Uh, verse 19. So what does it look like if the Spirit empowers Jesus as the servant of God? What, what kind of service would he give, in other words? Well, verse 19 says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not going to come with the type of ministry where he's going to stand on the side of the street with a megaphone and preach. That's not his style. Uh, one of the things, and, and, um, when we were in New Orleans and we would go down to the French Quarter area or do ministry, uh, inevitably you would see the person with the A-frame sign on, the cardboard sign about the end times coming, they have their megaphone and they're preaching. And One time I just got so frustrated <laughs> And I stopped and told the guy, uh, you don't realize, but you are making our job doubly difficult for all the ministry we do here. Because not only are we having to speak the gospel to people, but we're having to overcome people like you who put a bad name on people that want to go and share the gospel in those type of situations because of the way that you're doing it. It's setting us back further who live here 365 days a year and are trying to do this type of ministry. That's not the type of ministry that Jesus would do. He wasn't going to come and quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. So it's not this overbearing style. Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. A bruised reed and a smoldering wick seem to refer to those who are hurting, those who are just about burned out, those who are hurting, Jesus doesn't come and run over. He comes with kindness and and, and compassion for those people. You may have heard this phrase. I've probably used it before, and I really like it. When you talk about the work of prophets in the Bible and you talk about what it looks like to share with people, what you see is that Jesus comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. So, those who are afflicted, those who are beat up, those who are worn down, Jesus brings comfort. He brings, he's not going to run them over. Those who are comfortable in their own ego and their own pride, Jesus will afflict. He will speak in hard ways to people in those situations. And, and so that kind of still stands for us is when you go up to someone and you're trying to encourage them, you're trying to figure out, does that person need an arm around the shoulder or do they need a push in the back? You know, which, which does that person need in those situations? And, and you're always so worried that when somebody is down and out, 
the person who comes and just runs them over, it puts out the candle completely because they're like, I didn't need that. I'm barely holding on as it is. I don't need to be beat up right now. I need a word of encouragement, a word of comfort to help me get through this, this situation. Uh, one thing that this passage so strongly speaks against is the idea that we would ever seek to advance the gospel through worldly power. Uh, the obvious overt examples would be things like the Crusades, things like colonialism, using political power to try to force conversions when it's not done by the power of the gospel, even cautions in our own age that we would use political power or cultural influence to try to advance the gospel instead of allowing the Spirit of God to do that work. Uh, those same type of things go so contrary to the way that Jesus ministered. Uh, it's not done through worldly power. He doesn't run over people, scream at them. Uh, it, it's just not how it works. He works in a different way. So you see there in verse 20, uh, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. In saying all this, we're not saying that Jesus fails to bring judgment. He does bring judgment. But it's, it's delayed. It's the second Peter idea of that the Lord tarries because he wants many to come to salvation, that, that justice does not come immediately because he's patient with us, that God's kindness leads us to repentance. And so you see that. And then verse 21, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Those that seems least likely to respond to the teaching of Jesus, those are the ones who will end up responding to his ministry, will respond to this hope because they are so beat up. They, they do seem so far from God, and they see this message of hope, and, and they respond. Now the question is, if that's how Jesus ministered, what does that look like for our lives? What does that look like for our ministry? Look back in Matthew chapter 5. I want to show you three places where this comes together. So what we're trying to ask ourselves is, Matthew chapter 12 shows us this is what the ministry of God's servant will look like. This is what Jesus' ministry is going to be like. As his followers, what implications does that have for our lives? What does that look like? Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who, when others, re or, start again, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Hopefully you see there how the language of the Beatitudes matches so closely the type of ministry that Jesus would have. That the language of the Beatitudes is not the language of people being blessed because they have more power than someone else, or because they try to assert their power over someone else. The Beatitudes are this upside-down type of language, the last-shall-be-first type of language. So what does it look like to be the servants of Jesus? It looks like the Beatitudes. It looks like this Sermon on the Mount type language. All right, now go to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter... Chapter 2, 1 Peter's also going to pick up on Isaiah's servant songs, interestingly enough. Peter uses those Isaiah, uh, those Isaiah passages as well. We're going to read a pretty big section here, and I think you'll get the feel pretty quickly of how this connects to Matthew. But we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. And I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter. And as we read, think to yourself, how does this match the model of Jesus' service that we saw earlier in, in that Matthew 12. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is the gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That's Matthew 12 right there. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's look at one more place. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're also going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. I failed to type that one out on your notes, but let's start in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So again, just a reminder, the question in front of us is, Matthew 12 gives us a picture of Christ's service. As his followers, how does that impact us? We saw the Beatitudes. We saw that incredible passage in 1 Peter. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Look at the qualifications for an overseer or an elder in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer or a bishop must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. That qualification there, not quarrelsome, is very similar to the concepts you see in Matthew chapter 12 about the type of ministry that Jesus would have. Now take that and go to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. And we could point to probably two or three other places you get a similar idea, but for time, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, so we're getting a picture of false teachers here, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now this is fascinating. One sign of false teachers is a hunger for controversy, a hunger to quarrel over things, which we find from Matthew chapter 12 is the very opposite of the type of ministry that Jesus lived out. This is interesting because some of the people that you see, and this is more of an online thing, and, and you see this happening in different areas, but people who set themselves up as discernment, they, they feel like their calling is discern, discern other false teachers, 
they themselves, as the ones who claim to be discerning, often show a huge hunger for controversy and a desire to quarrel about things constantly and always get in the middle of a new theological argument, which, biblically, is itself a warning sign of being a false teacher. Now, are there times to provide correction to false teaching? Absolutely there are. Are we supposed to just let people do whatever they want? No. But a hunger for controversy, making your ministry, constantly arguing with people and quarreling about things, is a sign of being against the ministry of Jesus and not in favor of the ministry of Jesus. What does Jesus' ministry look like? It's gentle. It's meek. He speaks the truth in love. He confronts power when he needs to, and he reaches out to those who are hurting with healing and hope and forgiveness and good news. That's what the ministry of Jesus looks like. And so, what are we going to commit ourselves to? Not getting in the middle of every controversy just because some people like to argue about things. We're going to commit ourselves to making disciples and doing it in a way that matches the way that Jesus lived his life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the way that the pieces of your word are connected together from beginning to end. Father, we, we love the way that Matthew is able to connect back to the gospel that is seen in Isaiah. We know that it's all your word from beginning to end. The way we live our lives, Father, we want that to match the ministry and service we see in Jesus, our Savior. So God, let us be careful that we are not known as people who operate from worldly power. We're not known as people who are overburdensome or quarrelsome, always seeking after controversy. God, let us live simple lives of truth and hope and love and sharing the gospel with others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks for being here tonight. God bless you.